listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Veronica Smith, author of When Communities Disappear, The Unspoken Truths of Community Revitalization Ideologies and Policies in the United States. Ms. Smith is the CEO of Impact Community Partners. She holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from California State University and an MBA from the National University. She's also worked in the economic development field for 18 years. Welcome to the show, Veronica. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's, let's jump right in. In your book, you start off by briefly giving us a bit of history, and then later in the book you go into much greater detail. Tell our listeners, if you will, why history, in particular the historic ex- examples you cite, uh, is important in understanding the more recent community revitalization policies you discuss in the book. Yes, thank you for that question. And I would say that history is critical to understanding where we're going and where we've come from. And in my experience, I would say that uh, a lack of history has led to a lot of catastrophe as it relates to things that we see that happen in in communities. You know, we often see people attempt to repeat things that have actually been tried or say things that just don't really resonate with the environment. But when we have that 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 true understanding of how we got here, it enables us to do a better job, quite frankly, and get things done and get started in the right way, in the right direction, versus wasting a lot of time based on doing things that we never understood in the first place. Well, and yeah, so why recreate the wheel each time, right? Exactly. All right. I believe I'm correct that as to issues of gentrification and displacement of communities, you think that generally there are some underlying uh, and common factors like politics and poverty uh, being two of those at least. Can you explain how these are factors um, in these policies? Yes. So if we think about if you've been involved in areas where a community was on the brink of quote-unquote gentrification, and I like to put it in quotes because depending on the the environment, depending on the situation, there's different things that are often at play. And one of the things that comes to mind for me is you might see a group of folks on the the late night news saying, well, they're gentrifying us. They're gentrifying our neighborhood or our community. And they typically refers to government. But what people sometimes don't take into account or maybe experience has not led them to realize the fact that individuals typically own the properties that are at play for being gentrified. And so, you know, I really stress and emphasize the importance of understanding policy and politics because it's not just people that act within communities. It's not just people that say, well, this is what I'm going to do because, as we know, housing is subject to a set of rules and regulations as it relates to that community. And these are things that, unfortunately, um, people don't always understand, you know, to no fault of their own, per se, but these are very critical things so that people understand that 
yes, sometimes government is at the helm, but you also have to understand the nature of real estate, the nature of ownership, the nature of property rights and states' rights as it relates to what people can do with the support of government or without the support of government. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking back. I'm a native New Orleanian. I'm thinking back to post-Katrina down here and the arguments back and forth, uh, which you, I'm sure, are very familiar with, um, Mm -hmm. about the, you know, I'll use the word again, gentrification, but in particular about removal of large areas that were African-American communities. Um, mm-hmm. and, and whether or not, and look, the properties were damaged. There was no argument about that, but whether or not this was being motivated by politics, one of the factors you cite, or poverty, another factor you cite, or, or racism. Um, are you familiar? It, it seems like that fits into what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It does. And, you know, New Orleans is a very tricky, um, <laughs> A very tricky conversation when it comes to uh, African-American people, environmental conditions, and historical context of how people end up in a place. Well, Um, you're right. You're right. We do. We have a very unique history in the South. Let me use another example, though, because I want people to understand what you're saying. And this is another one from down here. So Mm -hmm. I think it's the 1950s. They're going to build an interstate, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so on the surface, people would say, oh, well, that's a great idea, right? But Mm -hmm. where that interstate gets put, now this is where I think you come in, we're now back to politics and poverty, aren't we? Mm, Very much so. Okay. All right. You you also in the book lay out a variety of perhaps well-meaning but insidious influences on community and economic development policy. Can you start us off by discussing these, which are not always obvious from the outside? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say that um, we always have to balance growth, right? And growth looks different depending on how we grew up, depending on our background. So. Let's just take uh, the transportation or the highway example. Um, You know, we know here in the United States, as well as in other places, that all of our highways are in places where there were once people. And so it really comes down to how do we balance growth and how do we do what's right by and for the people who call that place home prior to there being this Um, you know, transportation investment plan throughout the United States. And so those are some of the things that when we stop, we really have to ask ourselves, okay, is it really about taking out the people that were there? Or is it about figuring out how to move people from place A to place B? And these are, are, are hard policies that often impact the most underserved people, meaning the people who don't have as much education, don't have as much money, and their place isn't worth, you know, what some of the surroundings, surrounding areas are. But it really comes down to how do we manage these policies and how do we, uh, how do we disrupt communities 
with as less disruption as possible, if that makes sense. So it's very hard. So we can look at some some places like in the South and say, well, do we just leave the community be and go to another area and then leave the individuals in that community to fend for themselves and figure out how to grow economically and thrive, which oftentimes they don't. Um, or do we figure out how do we progress? How do we grow? How do we move people from A to B and do it in a healthy way with as less disruption as possible as it relates to the people that live there. But is that really practical? Is it really practical when there's so many emotions and history and stories that are involved with the places that people live? And that's really, you know, it, it becomes impossible to balance in, in policy in making decisions for the benefit of, of growth when there are people involved. Yeah. Can can we take a slight detour, and maybe we should have done this out that, and talk about the historical policies, and you touch on this, both at the national and local level, that resulted in African Americans mainly being pushed into certain less desirable areas of communities, um, which then becomes relevant when we start talking about gentrification and other things. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the history of what uh, was originally called slum removal um, in the early uh, 1900s, and then it became urban renewal, which many African-Americans referred to as Negro renewal, Um, fast forward to the late 80s and 90s, then that was the height of our uh, redevelopment program. So... When we think about some of these names of federal programs that have trickled down to uh, the local level, we have to understand that what we see is not new as it relates to revitalizing communities and revitalizing people. Um, You know, the saying, some things change, some things remain the same. What we're doing is not new. The means and the ways that we are doing it is just changing. And when you you get a higher representation of people in color that are in uh, political seats, then things um, don't always happen as abruptly as it happened um, back then. And so if we look at um, redevelopment and we think about some of our um, cities, whether it is um, Louisville, Kentucky, whether it is Cleveland, Ohio, whether it is uh, Compton or Watts, programs that were led by the United States government at the federal level. You had funding that trickled down to the state level and the local level uh, by way of, we'll just use redevelopment. And this was a program that looked at the conditions of housing communities and made the decision to, okay, we're going to rehabilitate or revitalize this community and tear it down. And that tearing down of those structures uh, moved individuals, moved families uh, to various different places, disrupting the history as those families uh, may have known it. Um, There were cases, if we think about Los Angeles and the former Dodger Stadium, where many of those people that were in that particular community that was subject to or underwent redevelopment, they were homeowners. Mm -hmm. In that case, the government uh, made a decision to determine what those homes were worth, 
uh, in the name of what we now know as the new Dodger Stadium. So, you know, there are government policies that have been notorious, unfortunately, for disrupting families, for disrupting generational wealth, however one may have been defining generational wealth for their families, in the name of improving an area, improving the conditions so that economic growth, so that the the tax base could increase and so that community could thrive. Are you familiar with a book by Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law? Uh, Definitely. Yeah, and in it, and I guess this is what I was curious about, many of the communities um, that arose with people of color or or even immigrant communities were forced into those places because of federal laws, state laws, local laws, ordinances, etc. And then, if I'm understanding you correctly, those end up being the very locations where these so-called revitalization policies occur, which result in the breaking up of those communities. Is, is that accurate? That is accurate. Okay. And I think you may be referring to also, you know, redlining, um, which, is, which is directly related. But if we look at what is still happening today, um, sometimes people don't understand or make the correlation to redlining today because we don't use that term anymore. We use that term historically, so things just look a lot different. And the policies are, you know, named much differently today. So So is it fair to say that it was, and and I'm going to use this phrase, purposely discriminatory policies at the federal, state, and local levels that created or contributed to the problems that some of the revitalization policies at least attempt to address today? Without a doubt. Okay. In the book, and, and this may seem like a divergence to some, but it's, it's not. In the book, you also mentioned the Indian Removal Act that was implemented mm-hmm. under Andrew Jackson and resulted in the Trail of Tears, um, not only in the Trail of Tears, but the breakup of Native American communities. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't end there, right? I think you touch on this. There were American Indian boarding schools where children were actually taken out of their homes to Christianize and Westernize them. Another attempt basically at breaking up families. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Well, all right. So you touched on this also. The current language being used is community revitalization, but I'm old enough to remember, and you touched on it, uh, when it was called urban renewal. Um, one of the many euphemisms used to discuss revitalization. Can you can you fit that in for us? Talk about what were called urban renewal policies and how it relates back to where we are today. Sure, and you know I think when we start at the interview, um, I mentioned that some things change and right. some things stay the same. And yeah. it's you know we have a lot of words that we are banned from using a lot of terms that we are banned from using today because it makes people uncomfortable or it um, it resurfaces uh, experiences or history. And so going back to the importance of understanding, you know, I've been in situations where um, individuals didn't understand that, you know, in the field of economic development, we don't use the word renewal anymore. If you use the word renewal, um, depending on the era that one is from, they may fly off the rocker because people remember. 
people remember what happened to their grandparents and to their uh, great-grandparents and how they ended up where they are today. But it's, you know, if you think about it, it's like, what are we really to do as it relates to the fact that um, when we, you and I are both, you know, long gone, there'll still be communities that um, are, you know, subject to deterioration in terms of their park systems, their infrastructure, uh, the lack of resources, just because there was never that investment there. And so there has to be a means to do something when we talk, when we talk about, you know, uh, the big push for um, just the sake of humanity or, you know, now you have people that are um, pushing for um, housing as a, a basic right. So there's all these things that have evolved as people have evolved in politics that are really pushing us to have to do something, to have to do something that, you know, puts us in a position to have to care for those who cannot care for themselves. And really that's what we were dealing with to agree at the beginning, you know, during uh, the beginning of time when some of these policies were put into place by the United States. And it really, if we think about it, it comes down to opinion, you know, an opinion that, well, those those foreign Native American type people, and that may sound a bit odd, but if we're thinking about maybe an immigrant who came here to the United States who sees something that is uncommon to them or unfamiliar to them. And so what we as Americans tend to do is we like to change people or we like to uh, impose things on other people based on our lack of understanding of that culture or of that person's upbringing. And that gets us into these very political situations as it relates to some of these policies and programs, because at the end of the day and at the beginning of time, when we think about these policies, it was all about people changing other people based on desires, needs, the American dream, greed, or whatever else you might want to call it, assimilation and not understanding why people live the way that they live, why people do the things that they do, and we're still seeing it today. Well, you know, there's there's much discussion today, and of course this is on a broader context, about whether discriminatory policies still exist or whether we're only dealing with uh, residual effects of past discriminatory policies. And, and I seem to recall uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass was asked a question like this, and she cited housing as an example. How do you see that when we're talking about housing and revitalization? Are we still dealing with directly discriminatory policies, or are we dealing with the residual of policies that existed for a long time? I think we're dealing with both. Okay. And it really depends on if we're talking about homeowners or if we're talking about renters. So if you think about the um, the rental market, you know, housing discrimination looks a little bit different than it does uh, when it comes to homeowners who are dealing with the residual effects of discriminatory policies that have affected how they live. So let's just think about um, rural areas. Um, here in California, as well as, you know, I have family that lives in in the South, if we think about the, the way that infrastructure policies uh, were put into place in certain areas, you have elderly people 
who in many cases today are living in deplorable conditions, are living in conditions that um, environmentally are not okay. And if the, the government finds out, depending on, you know, the community that the, the home is in, that home would be condemned and in, in that, you know, individual or that house would be placed into receivership. We're seeing this a lot in California. And we look, when we look at where some of these homes are, they're in places that were subject to these these policies that we're talking about that push some people out, brought some people in, or the eyes were just not on um, what the infrastructure systems look like, um, what improvement looks looked like in that area for a variety of different reasons, whether it was economics, whether it was because there was not enough people there, or it was a poor area, and so it wasn't important for the the government to invest in improving the infrastructure or the onus was on the property owner if they're in a rural area um, where it's, you know, more hands-off with the government. So it really just depends, and it really is a combination of both because we're seeing, you know, in the, the rental market in California, rents, you know, average rents in some communities, $3,000. Who can really afford that? It pushes people to live in, um, you know, the, the less desirable right areas. So it's, it's, it has a, a inverse or reverse effect depending on where you are, depending on the condition. So um, some of these things are new. Some of these, these policies that are pushing people out, you know, are new. And some might say, well, it's not just affecting black people anymore because we are, you know, <laughs> much more of a, a diverse nation, especially in places like California. So it really depends, but it is definitely still residual as well as uh, discriminatory practices based on sometimes income more, more so than, than race. That's an excellent explanation. Now you also in the book, and I guess this is timely discuss how the pandemic uh, has affected the community and the politics uh, of revitalization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, The pandemic depending on uh, what topic it's, it's, you know, it's affected (laughs) us all in so many different ways. Um, We can choose health, we can choose education and income, but it has just been, you know, fivefold. And I think that we are really just at the beginning of how the pandemic really has affected us. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of weaknesses were revealed. Um, Yeah a lot of vulnerabilities in people and in systems. If we think about, you know, deploying the vaccine or giving folks access to the vaccine, um, equity came up early and it's still, um, it's still right there at the helm in terms of who's being vaccinated, who has access to vaccine, vaccines. And again, it, 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 it directly relates to the very policies that, that have, um, push people into the communities that they are in. And there's also culture that comes into play. So at the political level, you know, we tend to politicize things that we don't really have an understanding of. So there are some who will say that, well, it's not equitable and poor communities don't have access to the vaccine, but then you also have to understand culture. And I think one of the things for me is I'm always interested in other people's culture to have a true understanding of why people believe the things that they believe. <laughs> it's not always what 
right. the media or government makes it seem. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let me ask you this, because we, we're going to be running out of time here in a few minutes. You, you, asked some, you raised some questions in the book, so I'm going to uh, raise them with you. Whose responsibility is it to revitalize the community? Is it the role of government, the church, private entities? And, and should we just throw out the whole revitalization idea? I think that it's all of our responsibility, and we have to be more accountable um, to ourselves and to our own families. We cannot expect government to do it all for us. We cannot expect the church to do it all for us. So I put the question out there in the way that I did because mm-hmm. it's really a conversational piece. The book really, based on the way the chapters jump, it's like there's all these things that we think think about or these these questions that we only have dialogue around when it comes to people that we're closest to. Yeah. Yeah. But it really is. We we all have a greater responsibility to seek understanding, to understand history and hold all of our institutions accountable just as just as much as we need to hold our families accountable for all of these things. Yeah, unfortunately, and this is way beyond our topic, but we have uh, an ethic developing of her, what my father would have said when he was alive, hooray for me, and uh, don't care about anybody else. Um, but I understand what you're saying. Let me, let me end with this question. Uh, towards the end of the book, uh, under a chapter that you've labeled The American Dream is Officially Over, you, you write this. Have self-serving interests at every level of government officially strained the system of democracy, whatever is left of it, to the point of no return? Was Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream really a nightmare? Have we collectively strayed so far to the right that a crash-and-burn scenario is inevitable? Or perhaps it is time to own and accept the fact that there are things we will simply never change. Is that a despairing note that I'm detecting? Um, yes and no. Okay. I think that as our experiences change, we will understand that all roads don't begin and end with the United States of America. So as we explore how we got here, as we gain a better understanding of history, our our concepts of the American dream should be expanded and should be broaden and it should open our eyes to you know our dream doesn't have to begin and end here once we begin to be accountable again for ourselves and our futures we can travel the world and and see and learn how we got here as the united states of america and that is so important because then we will truly understand that we might have been living in a vacuum we might have been living in limited boundaries because we did not understand the cultures and the the individuals and the societies and the countries that helped shape the United States of America. That's very wise counsel. Now, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, You've been listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Toussaint. I've been very privileged to interview Veronica Smith about her new book, When Communities Disappear, the Unspoken Truths of Community Revitalization Ideologies and Policies in the United States. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Veronica. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, until next time.